0: Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst, and today is the day to get off our butts and start fighting for what we know is needed. We more or less held our fire, of course, for six months so Joe Biden could oust Trump. That was the fear. We said there would be a time after Trump was gone to fight to get Biden to do the right things, that he was flexible, that we could pressure him. We elected Biden so we could pressure him. Well, the time for the pressure started, frankly, a few weeks ago, but it is accelerated and should be happening right now. First, let's get rid of that phrase, quote, it could have been worse, end quote. Oh, John Kerry, as a climate envoy, it could have been worse. Janet Yellen, as Treasury Secretary, well, it could have been worse. Of course it could have been worse. The last four years have been worse. We are progressives. Being progressive means, you know, it could always be worse. But we are not going to settle for it could have been worse. It's a slow roll, right? We are going to make John Kerry fight for real climate action or maybe even demand someone else. We are going to push Janet Yellen to be the best of herself as we rebuild from this pandemic or demand someone else. I know you're tired, but now is not the time to rest or be complacent. We have fought a long time for this slight opening that we have right now. But that opening will not be handed to us. It has to be demanded, shamed, and pressured into. What a tragedy it would be if we ease off just when we need to double down on the fight. Let's break this down a bit. Let's start with John Kerry. As a symbol, this could be mm, interpreted perhaps as great. Biden put a trusted friend in a cabinet-level job that includes bringing climate consciousness to national security, something he knows about. Someone who other countries may even be envoying to, you know, the special envoy to that country. They may recognize him and may actually respect him as opposed to the Trump administration. The problem is, is that we don't need symbols. We need to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Rejoining the Paris Climate Accord is nice and and necessary, but we all know that the deal actually isn't even good enough. This is about survival. We need real actions and fast. Which is why it is disturbing that John Kerry, former Secretary of State and presidential nominee, knows so little. Did you see the great tweet from Kate Marvel, the climate scientist, introducing herself to John Kerry on Twitter, where it turns out that the new climate czar slash envoy doesn't follow a single climate scientist? President-elect Biden, if you wanted someone, a symbol even, with a global reputation and an understanding of climate change and executive institutional knowledge and maybe even neoliberal fluency, why not someone like Al Gore? He educated generations on climate change. He introduced the idea to so many Americans who didn't even process it yet. That's a great envoy, right? For those of you for whom climate change is the existential issue, meaning everybody really, but are conscious of it and aware of it and take it seriously, this is a moment of truth. Symbols and words don't matter right now. Only deeds. A global Green New Deal that creates well-paying jobs, building a smart carbon-free power grid. That kills all the subsidies for carbon fuels. That helps oil field workers become windmill builders. You get it, but you will get it if you fight now with all of your strength to keep private jet flying oligarch air John Kerry from sliding off into the ether where, to quote Rupert Murdoch's New York Post again, as we did yesterday, he looks like he's doing things, but nothing happens. Don't follow the money, follow the science. Near the peak of Mount Loa Observatory in Hawaii, there are these devices that measure carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and I checked this morning, the reading said 413.4 parts per million. Last year on this date, it was 411.1 parts per million. 350.org, which Bill McKibben, former Bernie Sanders surrogate, uh, progressive leader on this issue, which he started, 350.org says the maximum should be 350 parts per million. Get it? We are so far past speeches and patronage jobs, and whether the climate czar is in the cabinet or the National Security Council or the Paris Accord. What matters now is results, and we can measure those results each day at the summit of Maula Loa. Carbon dioxide in the atmosphere needs to be coming down, not going up. Which brings me to the other very, very important and problematic Biden appointee, Janet Yellen at the Treasury. No doubt, it could have been worse. Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders praised this pick. The Biden administration said, oh, the progressives will be happy about this pick, and the centrists will too. It could have been much, much, much worse, not just under Republicans, but under Democrats too. I'm looking at Bob Rubin, in case he's watching, or someone is, I'm sure they are. The good news about Janet Yellen, the good news, is that she's an actual labor economist. She has done good work recognizing, keyword, the importance of income inequality to a stable, growing economy. She recognizes that need. She supports more pandemic relief. I can't believe this is even controversial, (laughs) seriously. On the other hand, her history includes that dreadful, dreaded word, austerity, and a concern about running up the government debt. I guess she hasn't read Stephanie Kelton's book or anything she's ever said, listen to anything she said. We need the better angel side of Janet Yellen, the the labor recognizing side of Janet Yellen. Now is no time, now is no time to worry about debt or was it ever? Now is the time to worry whether Americans have enough money to buy food and pay their rent, which spoiler alert, most working Americans and small businesses didn't before the pandemic and definitely don't now. Our quiet days are over. Our complacent days are over. We have to find ways to bring our voices to bear on John Kerry, on Janet Yellen, on John Biden himself, or Joe Biden himself, excuse me. When I say our voices, I specifically mean organizations who are structured, who have members, who have funding, who are silent right now, or are swaying the movement into pipe dreams like Bernie at labor. I mean unions, especially the unions who rep workers on the front lines. They need to amp it up. Come out from behind the scenes. Those back table talks, I I don't even know what's going on back there. We need to increase the heat on these appointments and staffing choices because clearly the backroom deals are not working. The pressure on the outside is what could possibly move them. We can move them, we must move them. We don't really have a choice right now. We're in an existential crisis. So please don't get distracted by little fights. This is the time to bring pressure to bear on the big goals. Our union allies are central to this fight, and they always have been. It's a great pressure point with Joe Biden. I'm 100% for putting progressives into important positions, but it is even more important that the people in these important positions do a progressive job, meaning they recognize the crisis of working Americans. Spoiler alert, working Americans means most Americans. And that depends on us making it happen. And I will have much more to say on this in the coming weeks. But in the meantime, we have a terrific show. It's the day before uh, Thanksgiving, Indigenous Peoples Day. We have Christopher Vials on to talk about the cultural interpretations of anti-fascism and whether or not our current president, remember him, Donald Trump, is actually a fascist. And then later, we have Simon Rodan and Arun Chowdhury to discuss today's news. But if you are not already, make sure to click that subscribe button. Do it now. This is the time to do it. And hit that little bell so you know when we go live, when we have breaking news, when we do special programming. And if you are not already, join us on patreoncom slash Show. Spoiler alert! Again, third spoiler alert! That is how we pay for our show. It's not easy. This is a daily show. There's a lot of work. There's booking involved. We have members of our team who are very invested in the big uh, picture of this show, and we have a lot of exciting things to come. But our patrons are the ones who have been getting us there throughout this process. So if you are looking to maybe indoctrinate your family members or some friends, I have, you know, a little bit of cable news background, so I might be a good entrance point for some of them. You can join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi He Show for as low as $5 a month. It'll be a great, like, I don't know, holiday gift, pick your holiday. I, I think it's fun. I'm going to start gifting my friends' shows to my family members that are open to indoctrination. I have a lot of Republican family members who just voted for Joe Biden. I was like, step one. Step two, read Stephanie Kelton. Step three, let's get into their, like, breaking down the Fox News, uh, you know, propaganda. But this is how you do it. You got to inform them um, and just say, like, you know, listen, just just check out the show. Just one episode. Let's just, just open your mind up a little bit. You'll be surprised. All right, guys, we'll be right back uh, with Christopher Biels. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. So we still have a president uh, who uh, we have to keep an eye on. I mean, the fact that like, he just basically acknowledged uh, he's not going to be president is concerning, uh, but it did spike spark this conversation about whether or not, especially pretty much on the left, but whether or not he's actually a left or a fascist. Oh, my God. Whether or not Donald Trump is a fascist, let me be very clear. And that is a conversation that has been heated over the last few years, but has existed in certain uh, groups on the left. And we have the perfect person here to break it down for us. I just read his article uh, in Jacobin, which was out on November 10th. Uh, A lot has happened since November 10th. It's titled, Here's What We Learned About the Far Right from Donald Trump's Presidency. It explores uh, the idea of fascism, because he's also the author of a book called Haunted by Hitler. And he's professor a professor at University of Connecticut. Uh, Christopher Vials. thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me on.
0: So let's just like, I, let's start from the Trump, fascist or not a fascist?
1: Oh, boy. Uh, yes.
0: <laughs> oh, I did not get that interpretation from your article. So what's happened since that article?
1: Well, y- yes, in terms... Hi- Like, Look, when we say is something a fascist or is someone a fascist or not a fascist, we have to kind of break that down into, you know, we have to think about fascism in terms of fascist states, fascist movements and fascist personalities, right? Hmm. Fascist states, there's been very... a precious few of those, um, Germany, Italy, before World War II, um, Spain, Imperial Japan, historians quibble about them, but they've been mercifully few. And, you know, the United States, despite Trump, didn't become a fascist state, though we certainly moved in that direction. Um, we certainly became more authoritarian, but if, it had, if he had, Trump had turned it into a fascist state, we wouldn't be talking right now. But um, fascist movements have existed all, in all countries, for the most part, since World War II and before, right, including in this country. And some of them have been quite mainstream, whether we're talking about the Klan in the 1920s, Father Coughlin's movement in the 30s, George Wallace in the 60s. Um, they've actually been around and they've exerted a real impact on American history and American culture and American life. And um, Trump, um, he is... He didn't command a fascist state. He didn't basically um, command a coherent fascist movement. The Republican Party is still not a full-blown fascist party, though it's got those elements in it. but what he is, is um, a kind of a, a fascist in his personality and in his rhetoric. And what what you look for, if you think about fascism, fascism is a particular strand of the right. It's a particular strand of the political right. It's it's more specific than conservatism or even authoritarianism. Um, it's a kind of right-wing politics in which the mobilizing passions are all about race, nation, action, violence. Um, it's ex- Explicitly anti-Marxist, um, it's hyper-nationalistic. Um, it's not so much about tax cuts or you know deregulation or those kind of libertarian themes that you're used to and you'll see first and foremost in people like Ted Cruz, right? So it's it's um it's a different animal and um but Trump in his rhetoric. Um, presses all of those fascist buttons you know for those of us who study this stuff the words are there and what's scary is that it's he's proven that a fascist rhetoric at the very least is electable he just wasn't able to move the state fully over in that direction is it because he didn't have enough time Possibly, or and he doesn't have the training, right? And we're also in a different. Seriously, is there a
0: school? I thought that was Steve Bannon. Steve, oh, because they locked him up. He didn't get to go to that monastery in Italy. That Steve Bannon's
1: <laughs> yeah, I think there's a school, in, school. In, yeah, there's a school. Yeah, there's a school in Michigan somewhere that's pretty scary, and Liberty University maybe. But yeah, no, he uh, <laughs> no, but but yes, uh, he just basically so he didn't get the best schooling in the world. Sorry, no, he didn't get the best schooling in the world exactly. <laughs> but no, he he went to um, you know his job really was a faceman and confidence man for his father's real estate empire in New York. And so he he what he is not is he is not somebody who came up through the ranks of the military like a hitler or a mussolini who is a movement builder who is an organizer right he's not he's he's a pure narcissist and a tv star right and so that's um the his movement kind of rises and falls based on his own personality and that's the weakness of basing a movement on one person's personality when there's no kind of organizing to back it up right so you know what we, we got to look out for is somebody like that who is a little bit more savvy as a politician and an organizer right
0: i mean as of i have a lot of questions just to go back to the fascism but as of right now there there are really on, on both sides any people any politicians any leaders um who have a movement that they've organized on behalf of their cause that i mean we're all talking about like well you know Trump paved the way, it's, it's we worry about who's next, somebody who's, who speaks slicker. It's like, I actually thought that his rhetoric was exactly the tone that you need to mobilize those folks, but if those folks are not being organized. So is there somebody that can inherit his movement that, that has been pseudo organized and build off of it that we're just not aware of that has that experience of organizing?
1: I haven't seen that person yet, thankfully. Um, it, but we can't lull our selves to sleep thinking that they won't find that person. The, I think that. <laughs> I'm sorry.
0: Like the, the police union president yeah, or something. Right, yeah. right,
1: something like that. Or, or a military man, right? Somebody who's maybe a veteran is read as like a, a man of honor, right? Um, who's respected um, and who, again, can really organize people beyond just being on TV and making a lot of noise, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I haven't, again, I haven't seen um, that person out there who is a direct replacement of Trump, um. But at the same time, uh, I I think that movement is in crisis because it's not easy for them to find another Trump. You know, can they find another TV star with white nationalist politics or neo-fascist politics? Um, Maybe. Can they find that person with who's a shrewd organizer on top of that? That's not easy. Right. So they you know, some people are saying Tucker Carlson. And I I just don't see that having the kind of working class appeal um, as somebody like Trump did. So
0: It's like they, they they get distracted by the TV part of it and not enough. Um, I mean, it's the same thing in the Democrats. They became obsessed with having a billionaire version of Trump and not enough on, well, the populist side of Trump is what appeals to, to most people. The billionaire version you know, is a different side of it. Um, here's a name to throw out, not that this is what we should make the conversation all about. Dan Crenshaw.
1: Okay. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not super familiar with Dan Crenshaw.
0: You know, he's a veteran. I mean, the, the the reason I say is you can, they can always move you further, right? Like you can start, if you're starting off as an organizer and they're moved further, right? Like that's, I, you know, I think you bring up a very strong point, which is if you don't have that organizing, you're, you mentioned in the piece, he's more like a Berlusconi mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. than a Mussolini.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, in his temperament, right? And in his training and in his uh, public image, right? Although he's much more kind of fascist in his rhetoric than Berlusconi. Berlusconi was a straight up libertarian in a lot of ways. Um, and he was all about, you know, reducing the size of the Italian government. Granted, he was friends with quite literal fascists, like Alessandro Mussolini, with, like the, Mussolini's granddaughter. He's right? still a
0: fascist. Like, right, it's it's still fascist right? most, most grandchildren are like, oh my God, distance me from
1: that. <laughs> right. There's no equivalent for that in Germany, right? If you your last name is Hitler, you have nothing to say,
0: right? Change um, your name. You're in hiding. Right, in Argentina. right. Argentina.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're ashamed. Yeah. But so, you know, Berlusconi had literal fascist friends, but at the same time, you know, Trump in his rhetoric is much more like him, but I'm just saying in his persona and in his um, training and his temperament, um, he's more like a Berlusconi in certain ways, uh, you know, at, at least in what he's capable of doing um, as a TV personality, as a playboy than he is Mussolini.
0: So one of the things that you brought up, I, I thought was fascinating, is um, the, the, one of the weaknesses in the fascist argument of, against Trump is uh, that okay. First, you say that 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 history never repeats itself, so should we never so we should never look for an exact repeat of the essay or Franco. Um, but the other side of it is you you bring up big tent and how fascist movements um, really require a big tent, and and then you critique. Trump and say he didn't quite get there. But I mean, from my perspective, he still got like 74 million votes. A lot of, uh, maybe a week before the election, we were saying there's no way he can win because he's not building the coalition he needed. And that is incredibly true. But it's still, you know, there's still plenty of, I'm just dealing with Trump because I got my tax cuts. I, the economy is better than ever for me under Trump. Let him do his little, and just ignore the racism. That to me, and and granted down ballot, it works too. So I think electorally, sure, not a big enough tent. Movement wise, it does seem like a big enough tent.
1: Am I wrong? No, no, yeah. And, and I might have misspoke or not communicated clearly enough. When I was saying big tent, I was talking about anti-fascism, you know, like oh, a, anti, yeah, anti-fascism is, needs to be more of a big tent. But I think you raise a really, really excellent point, which is it, well, a lot of historians have looked at what's the relationship between um, conservatives and fascists in these, you know, in Germany in Italy, in um, and uh, Italy and Spain. And the short answer is, the, you know, how that translates into contemporary politics. You've got the kind of the, in the United States, you have this Trump base, this hard Right. Coalesces around things like Breitbart and now like Parler and these other sites. So the alt-right, you've got this hard right base, including the Christian right. They're not even homogenous. They're not even organized, but they are folks that I would be comfortable using the F word with. But um, with then you have the establishment Republicans. Right. The kind of the the people who are more about preserving tradition, preserving elite rule, neoliberalism, you know, uh, you know, cutting red tape for big business. These are corporate leaders. Right. And they intersect and they form kind of coalitions and they and they are they kind of they come together in the, quote unquote, big tent of the Republican Party. Right. But at the same time, there's always there's going to be kind of divergences and clefts between them. But you you can't expect conservatives to ever really resist that fully. I was actually slightly surprised um, to see the electors and the the canvassing boards um, who are staffed by Republicans actually do their job, which um, to me tells me that they don't see Biden as, as, as enough of an existential threat um, to actually go fully along into right-wing authoritarianism, right? The establishment Republicans are not really buying necessarily the Trumpian narrative that Biden equals socialism, which is, you know, as we know, he's, it was ridiculous, right? But um, so that's, I mean, but you might expect that to change, if the left gets a lot stronger, if the, if they start to see an existential threat in the Democratic Party, or they start to see an existential threat in socialism, and when I again, when I'm saying they, I'm saying the more establishment conservatives, right?
0: Um, you also mentioned that that uh, the elites, the the, fin- the 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 rich, essentially, um, in order to have a successful fascist movement, there needs to be buy-in from the elites and. I guess looking at the 2016 election, eventually, right after the, the floor fights, and and you know he won, and and it seemed like the elites were siding with Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't necessarily even buy that they ever. Maybe some of them left. The ones you know who who were never on his side, anyways. They were like the 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 Bushes, the that the Bush circle, right? So I guess I guess the question, like, I mean, the reason why I've I've thought this is still fascism, it just wasn't. I still thought it was successful fascism. He was still able to gut the government. He was still able to get these tax cuts. He was still able to um, inspire and ignite uh, racism and race, what race riots fueled by specifically the police and and using the police as an arm, maybe his military. Um, So, I mean, but, but it doesn't seem like that you think that, that, that there was enough of the elite rich on his side.
1: Yeah, no, there, there was. I mean, and don't get me wrong. I again, I, I hope I'm, I'm not confusing things further here. But well, your, your yeah.
0: article. Let's just be clear. Your article has been circulating, and everyone's been saying, like, read this. See, he's not a fascist. So it's like, is this the hill you want to die on?
1: No, no, no. no, Well, no, 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 no. In fact, like, there was a there was a, a little editorial blurb at the top that I I didn't write that made it sound like you know I was saying the absolute opposite, right? right. Um, but at this, at the same time, yeah, I, I mean. It, he, uh, I'm sorry. The, the before this, the question you were you were saying like the um, I'm sorry, wealthy,
0: the wealthy, the wealthy, yeah, the wealthy co- right, the right, coalition with the wealthy, the fascists right. need are dependent on Trump or not Trump. I'm just very, um, I'm very interested in understanding what that coalition looks like.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess there's various levels of complicity, right? You know, if if we're talking about their vote, they're voting for Trump or they're giving some money to Trump, that's one level of support, right? You're basically saying you're still working within the electoral system. What you're basically saying is um, I want my tax cuts and I, it's this whole racism and misogyny and homophobia is not a deal killer for me. Right. But then that's, that's one level of support. There's another level of support that would that would really following follow him fully off an authoritarian cliff and say, okay, well I'm not just going to vote for you. I am going to follow your lead as you completely shut down a 200 plus year old democratic system. That's a that's a whole other level of complicity. There's no turning back from that. And 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 that's where you need the military. And that's where I've 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 talked about with other folks too is the military is and the military leadership, I mean, Thank God Trump really pissed off the military leadership um, because uh, really you can't really have your fascist coup unless those folks are on your side. They some of them may vote for you, but it's another thing to actually again follow you down the road to a coup d'état, which the stakes of that are you you possibly go to jail or die, right? And so uh, you know they've got to be really really confident in the glorious leader um, for that to happen, not just just not not just a vote, right? So yes, com- there is elite. Con- Simplicity, but I'm just thinking about the various levels of that, you know?
0: Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very like, just for, for our audience, for understanding the purposes, of the differences between being a fascist authoritarian and just an authoritarian. Can you break that down? Sure,
1: sure. Again, again a, a fascist is... You know, uh, think about it in terms less of a state and more of a movement, right? And the movement is driven by anti-Marxism, a warrior ethos, kind of whether it's militarism or the the law and order of the police, right? It's driven by male violence. It's driven by racism. It's re- driven by a campaign against national minorities. Um, these are the kind of the mobilizing passions, and it's authoritarian, right? That's a particular strand of politics, a right-wing politics politics. Um, And, you know, there is also a, you know, there's, there's a, kind of an elite conservatism that I see is kind of separated from that um, which is more about again preserving elite privileges class elite privileges right um, and which is really about you know again more legible to folks is libertarianism right I guess that's the, the, the easiest way to put it so, you know smaller government all of that kind of things and if you see Trump's speeches what's really striking and this was on in 2016 during the campaign um, you this is a Republican candidate and he didn't even really talk about tax cuts or liberty or freedom, right? You know, and we've, we're used to those words being abused, right? And if you look at Ted Cruz, you will see all of those, you know, bogus, you language flying and, into
0: a flag like, that's yeah, like
1: this language of liberty and all of that stuff. That, that, that there's no talk of liberty. It's all about just strength, race, you know, macho, you know, that's all it's about. And so that's where even in 2016, I went, oh, wow, we're really, really in for a ride. Cause when I wrote that book in 2014, I didn't even think a U.S. president would get that far. I wrote that the Honey by Hitler" book during the Obama years. You know, when it was a movement that you could say it had, it had fascist movements had destabilized U.S. politics throughout U.S. the sorry throughout the 20th century. But um, I really didn't think we'd be dealing with somebody like that in the Oval Office, much less somebody who um, we let's let's just be clear, uh, uh, just barely did not turn the United States into an authoritarian state by completely throwing out the election, right?
0: I'm I'm really glad you said that because, you know, yesterday on our show, I basically said, you know, it came down to uh, an election commissioner, one in Michigan, one in Pennsylvania, and these generals, frankly, that resisted. And, And if we see how close it came down to, and even the vote was not clearly presidential we can say that joe biden won by eight nine million more whatever it is at the end of the day we don't even know still um still at the end of the day it's it's it was extremely close as as the trump campaign was predicting so you're you're making me think a lot about reagan and the um you talk about slick right how many of the check boxes would you say that he checked off in terms of because I mean, he didn't still hate. He, there was there was a lot happening, uh, a lot of racism, a lot of sexism, a lot of classism, a lot of a, a lot of this stuff was happening um, in the 80s. And but you never hear, oh, Reagan leaned fasc- fascistic. He was just a classic. You know, he was a conservative, but he also defied the Republican Party and, and took it over. And of course, make America great was his slogan.
1: Yeah, no, and, and they've all got that. And Reagan, let's let I in my book I call the kind of the Christian right in particular strands of it. You know, fully. You know, I'm fully comfortable with the fascist label for the Christian right, and the and the Christian right was pretty essential to the Reagan coalition. So again, the big tent of the Republican Party always has has always contained those elements. You know, I think with Reagan, yes, he relied on those elements, but his rhetoric and his beliefs and His tone and his stress on liberty and freedom and democracy, even though he, I do not share his views of those terms. He was more of a straight up neoliberal, um, and who was, and in in fact, he's one of the main kind of uh, folks behind neoliberalism on the global stage. He and Thatcher, right? So I would say see him as more of a straight up kind of neoliberal conservative um, with. Supported by fascist elements as they always have to be, um, whereas Trump moved all of that stuff to center stage he moved all of the fascist bells and whistles to center stage right I think that that to me would be the difference um, because yeah yeah in a nutshell
0: That's very interesting okay um, I, I know you know this has been explored quite a bit over the last five years. Uh, Trump's brain. How much of this is Trump and his upbringing and his father, um, and how much of this is comes from certain folks like Stephen Miller, Miller, Steve Bannon, and who are those folks? Because I think you know it's probably important to watch them post Trump, what they do, where they recruit, where they go.
1: Yeah, and and I'll go back to something you said a second ago that I think is really important, which is that you, like me, were really looking to see, okay, what is the Michigan Canvassing Board gonna do? What is uh, Brian Kemp gonna do? What is this Secretary of State in Georgia is gonna do? We're really at the mercy of these people who are pretty right wing, just to kind of obey the law. And that is a really fragile state to be in. And I think one of the things that we have to look at and look for going forward is uh, who are the Republicans gonna put in these positions next time? And I have a sense it's gonna be, people who are much more fanatic, people who will do whatever they need to do to overturn elections. So, I mean, that's something that we are not out of the woods by any stretch. I don't want to panic people, but um, I also want us to be real about this. I mean, we did come really, really close um, just a moment moment ago in terms of, you know, Trump and, you know, what you would ask is, you know, how much of this is his uh, his brain and his family. Let's let's not forget his his father, Fred Trump, was um, busted at a Klan race rally in the 1920s, right in Queens. And so um, in the Klan again, was the United States a first mass fascist movement, right? So it's he's not a reader. You know, it's not that he's read Mussolini or he's read, even read probably Steve Bannon. He probably watches TV and he doesn't seem to have the attention span to complete a, a full book. Um, and I'm not saying that as a diss, I'm just saying as a, as a descriptor. Um, I think we so-
0: all, yeah, we, we picked up on that one when he started hiring Fox News uh, weather analysts to use you know, Saturday morning shows to represent the State Department. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but no, absolutely. So he's just um, you know, so he's he's picking this up this this fascist sensibilities up from memory, from family history. And yes, you know, we have that book from Mary Trump which I which I like, you know, like he was one of these guys who was essentially just never touched as a baby, right? So that explains a lot of why he is the way he is and who he became. So, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of it is what makes someone an authoritarian personality to begin with does oftentimes have a Lot to do with family dynamics. And there's a great study of this called the authoritarian personality from 1950 from some Jewish German, um, sociologists and exiles. And they really do, uh, like it's, it's a particular kind of white guy that tends to go over to fascism and it's, and it, it comes from a really frustrated relationship to the father oftentimes that doesn't have a vent. And it's one of these, one of these kind of male types that, um, is, has a very repressed relationship to their father, but can't seem to critique their father and think their father hung the moon. And so, uh, and that's a recurrent thing, right? Over and over you see in folks who go into leadership positions in these movements. So, you know, when I say see, he's Generally
0: a... speaking, the leadership positions, it's not like the folks who join the Proud Boys and go out on the street and fight. This is very specific to the leaders of these movements.
1: Well, no, I, I, I misspoke. I mean, the, yeah, we don't have a a, a breakdown of, in, in, in say in Germany and Italy, of a of, of intricate pro, a personality profile of all the rank and file um so but i would say the rank and file and leaders but you know i could speak i know of, i just know more about the leaders to, to say sure. that for sure. sure yeah well
0: you know it's it's I'm just curious because we're on youtube and yeah <laughs> there's a right. lot of
1: boys on youtube right right <laughs>
0: So anything we can do, maybe we'll have a a psychotherapist on to talk about uh, daddy issues. (laughs) No, no, that's,
1: there's a whole generation of German Jewish exiles who in the Frankfurt school, like Wilhelm Reich and uh, Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer, who said, yes, we need mass therapy, you know, to, to wean people away from the authoritarian personality. It's like, well, the challenge is, is, you know, how do you, uh, How do you how do you get somebody into therapy who hates introspection, which is part of the fascist personality, too? They hate thinking about their feelings and their emotions. So they hate psychotherapy. So the rest of us in the anti-fascist movement just mostly have to concentrate on just containing the damage they do and hope that they come around. (laughs) <laughs>
0: and just prescribe them lots of Xanax. <laughs> not Whatever Trump's taking, not that. <laughs> uh, anything else you want to leave us with in these final moments of of, of Trump's uh, reign?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to, we have to be vigilant, but I don't think we need to be completely depressed. I mean, as somebody who studied this, I would be much more depressed if I was in Hungary or in the Philippines, where the majority of the population is behind the authoritarian leadership. Leader. We're not in that space. And in fact, a lot of young people have moved wicked leftward. And a lot of young people are openly identifying with this term socialist. So I think the left is in it. And you have this massive Black Lives Matter movement in which a significant part of the population is directly participated in. So the left is in a pretty good position overall. Um, so I think people need to remember that who are watching this show is that, you know, if you don't like Trump, you are in the majority. And the majority of Americans are on your side. You're not powerless. You have the numbers. We have the numbers. And it's just about having the organizational forms that allows us to make good on that.
0: And as Jane McAlevey likes to say, power mapping so that we make sure that the Brian Camps and the election a commissioner guy, I, this is a whole new thing that I've had to learn about this cycle. So, is is making the right decision because if they don't feel the pressure, then they could very well ease into making the wrong decision, especially when it's this close. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris Fials, you can see the article that he wrote. You can read it on uh, Jacobin. Let's put that up right now. Here's what we learned about the far right from Donald Trump's presidency. It is in Jacobin, it came out last week. And of course, uh, you can check out his book, which is called Haunted by Hitler can buy it wherever you like to buy books, preferably not a monopoly, but you know, listen, it's hard sometimes to find books in places because that was a strategy. Uh, very, very <laughs> specialized strategy to uh, disinform folks. Chris Vales, thank you so much for joining us. Um, really interesting conversation. And I hope that we keep thinking about these issues because I don't think Bannon in jail or not, or or, uh, or I mean, listen, uh, the, the ghost of Nixon still haunts us and all of his staff members. So uh, they're not going away anytime soon.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Of course,
0: absolutely. All right, everybody, we'll be right back with our panel, Arun Chowdhury and Simon Road. We'll be here to talk about today's news. And uh, there's probably gonna be a lot of news in the next couple of days. So we're gonna try to jam it all in. So we'll be right back. when my mom is watching the show because she just texted me. Christopher Vial's taught at University of Buffalo. And my mom, <laughs> we grew up in Buffalo. So, of course, my mom had to mention Buffalo Connection. Also, uh, my taxi driver today had to keep reiterating that he's part of the Bills Mafia. So, for those of you out there who are Buffalonians, you know how serious this is. When there's a Buffalo reference dropped... It's important to mention it. <laughs> Aragorn Chowdhury uh, is, hey. I feel like I should know this by heart at this point, but I don't. He is a uh, political filmmaker. He, of course, um, was part of the Bernie 2016 campaign as the official videographer. Uh, and I think other things, creative director, that's the other thing. Uh, and he was also the official White House, the first official White House videographer under former President Barack Obama, current New York Times bestseller, (laughs) Barack Obama. And Simon Rode is a former Bernie Sanders 2020 organizer. uh, And he is also a socialist writer and, of course, part of Team TNS. Thanks for joining us, guys.
2: And Simon's someone who I get to talk to from time to time, but never face-to-face, so this is a real treat for me. Yes, yeah, right? Yeah, I'm excited yeah. about that.
0: He's going to be coming on more regularly. We're going to, you know, we're shaking it up.
2: But I come tonight with answers. In your last oh. segment, you were like, I want to know what Trump's on. And I can tell you because he is on what every president's on, because the presidency is run on drugs officially. So he takes wait, a what? thing called Pro Vigil to wake up, which is like a, a fighter Stop pilot. Wait,
0: wait, wait, hang on a second. Rewind. All presidencies are run on specific drugs, like you have to yeah. take
2: them and the oh, f- you get pro vigil, which is the kind of basically it's Adderall it's just sort of you know what? amphetamine uh that's your general like wake up one, and then Ambien is the sleep one, which is totally where Cofefe They comes
0: make you from. do this i I
2: mean they don't like pop I mean, it in your I mouth but why. there's no but there's no other way to to maintain the schedule of the presidency so of yeah. So, that so if you want went- to get deeper into it, if you're just a staffer, you can go to the White House uh, like pharmacy and you can ask for either one, ProVigil up or uh, Ambien down. You cannot ask for both at the same time. But if you were on Air Force One, there's just baskets of both fl- going through the aisles. Like, wow. you know, it's like total just free You are
0: blowing my mind. So that whole time, Barack Obama, as chill as he was, was on Adderall? Yeah. What was he, like, off about? or if <laughs> I had
2: four hours of sleep a night? You know what I mean? What are you going to do? Yeah. That's the thing with Barack Obama, though. I bet he was like this in college, too. He was, like, the person who you were probably getting really high with and just didn't seem like he was yeah. getting high. And you're like, yeah. what's the matter, man? And he's like, no, 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 I'm really high. But, like, just isn't <laughs> sort of, you know, isn't sinking into it.
0: Meanwhile, I don't know if you guys remember this, but when uh, Hillary Clinton said the biggest, the biggest mistake of the clinton uh, presidency administration was the fact that they didn't sleep enough because there was a lot of shouting and throwing of things a lot of tempers it was like very 90s era you know everyone be, would be canceled nowadays <laughs> basically it was like a campaign that's how campaigns are wow i just my mind is blown all right so let's talk about some news because there's some things that just blew my mind um there's a lot happening According to a recent poll, 68% of Americans want Joe Biden to exclude corporate lobbyists and executives from his cabinet. Jacobin reports that Bernie Sanders, surprisingly, said that it would be, quote, enormously insulting if Biden put together a team of rivals, speaking of Obama uh, and Lincoln, and there's some discussion that's what he intends to do, which might include Republicans and conservative Democrats, but which ignore the progressive community. I think that would be very, very unfortunate is what Bernie says. Much of this discussion is coming to, to head after Biden's appointments of Blinken and Haynes, both of whom have done work for consulting firms. And after talk of Biden potentially nominating Rahm Emanuel. Simon, how do you feel about this?
3: <laughs> Not great. <laughs> no, but um, but also, I mean, I think that we all should have been like very careful when we heard Biden talk so much about bringing the country together and unity, which are on their own like totally fine ideas in the abstract, but like, what does that really mean for someone like Joe Biden? And I actually remember at one of his town halls during the primary, someone specifically asked him about what he meant by that, was like, would you consider like bringing a Republican on into your administration? And he said, yes, I would consider a Republican as my running mate. He had talked about that. I remember and that, it's yeah. like and so it's you' got someone who's like would put a republican as their like right hand person, well, we shouldn't be so surprised by all of these um these picks so far and the names that are floating around uh as as unfortunate as it is.
0: I mean, this is this. This leads to a question around which I'm sure you're you're like aware of. It's like the neoliberals or the centrists. Just look at the parties, or frankly, people like John um, Avlon, who wrote a book on the far the wingnuts, literally the wingnuts. His his wife is Margaret Hoover, grandchild of Herbert Hoover, um, great grandchild. I don't know. Uh, they look at it as like it's just the Hatfields and McCoys. It's just like blue team versus red team. It's just like the Bills versus like. The Marlins or <laughs> two different sports,
2: sorry. <laughs> Bills versus another, yeah, football team of some kind. No, I mean, you know, I, I, for me. it's just really business as usual, right? There's nothing to even get, like, I- incredibly mad at. And it's not like Anthony, like, Bilkin is an exceptionally corrupt lobbyist or even an exceptionally, like, uh, you know, neoliberal person. He's part of this Washington consensus, around professionalism. And so what you're seeing is, per, you know, I think Biden wants to reach a hand to anyone who embodies that kind of professionalism. And that, by its very tone of sort of politeness, has a lot to do with class, has a lot to do with outsider insider status, and leaves a lot of progressives just out in the cold by its very nature without seeming to be a direct attack. And let's be honest, progressives already gave up their vote. So like, I, you know, the, the bargaining power of what you do is also gone.
0: So, so this is a, this is the thing that's really getting under my skin right now. In the last couple of days, in particular, um, we gave up our bargaining power. We, okay, we lost the election. Clearly, that we lost the election. And I keep hearing him progressives saying, like, "Well, we lost. What do you expect now?" It's not about that. We helped get him elected still because we wanted to Absolutely. pressure Biden into becoming a forget about even the word progressive into recognizing that we have a crisis in this economy and and responding to the most responding to it by protecting the most vulnerable people in the community so if you're going to look at professionalism what about some union leaders why can't we have more than just a labor secretary but a few union leaders who could potentially bring their professionalism or institutional knowledge into a cabinet position um, or an advisor position rather than the lobbies for Goldman Sachs or whatever, you know, uh, military industrial complex spying agency you want to pick?
3: Yeah, well, also, um, I mean, like, uh, these are people who a lot of them are tied to the Obama administration and sometimes to Biden specifically. Like, uh, Blinken, I think, was a senior aid to biden um biden. yeah yeah at the, at the time of the iraq war vote too um so i think it's a lot of it has to do also with these like connections it's like why bring in someone uh with like in labor who you don't have a relationship with um and i mean of course the reason you don't have a relationship with them is because of the sort of like neoliberal consensus of like not bringing labor into the conversation on a lot of these issues um but yeah i mean it's I don't know what to say about
2: it. I mean, no, it's really really what you're saying, Simon. And I think think it's more than that. It's that the Biden administration and those around him don't actually see what the emerging consensus that brings the country together is, Mm. which is... Social services, which is better health care delivered. Like this is something that Donald Trump ran on in 2016. And Republicans were like, I like the sound of that. You know, this healthcare thing sounds OK. And they didn't even have
0: unions supporting yeah, so them, You know, we have
2: brand I- damage in the Democratic Party where maybe people don't trust them to deliver on those things necessarily, but we know what people want, and it's broadly the same across the entire spectrum. There's no, you know, no libertarians in a pandemic, let's say. <laughs>
0: Exactly, but okay. So, Reg, you were there uh, when Obama inherited an economic crisis. You know, just for for the kiddos in the room who may may not remember it. You know, day by day, the economic crisis fully hit a month before the 2008 election, a month and a half before the 2008 election. So, everything shifted. We thought overnight, but even then, he he didn't have a landslide. He won with a significant margin, but not a huge landslide, right? Yeah even with Sarah Palin, even with John McCain walking past the cameras and not even recognizing it during town halls. I'll never forget those moments. He forgot how
2: many houses he had also. That was one of my (laughs) favorites. Oh, I remember that one. (laughs) Yeah, we made a lot of videos that week.
0: Yes. (laughs) But you were there watching um, the president-elect and the president, eventually the president, inherit this crisis. Were you conscious or aware of the kinds of conversations about like the people that they bring in? Of course, people always say... um, you know the 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 finance people were brought in the wall Street folks were brought in instead of the labor folks or the progressive economists. I mean, what what were you thinking at that time when these decisions were being made?
2: Well, it was, we were all a bit punch drunk a bit. And I think we forget, this is already a, there were professionals coming up enough times to make me like sick to my stomach. (laughs) But like, you know, we're seeing a very professional transition happening now. Obama was a bit of an outsider in the Democratic Party. We bumbled through transition in a lot of ways, didn't know where the offices were, couldn't figure things out, and lost a ton of nominees in the first like week. It was like, Dashiell went down, Richardson went down. Like this sort of, uh, yeah, it just went down. And, uh, and so I the think there was a lot of just, oh, we just got to get in the door to see what happens. And I will say as sort of one of the, you know, more progressive people, uh, around, um, it, you thought that I didn't appreciate how much the cabinet and the advisors really set the kind of Overton window for the president. And they are the ones serving the buffet and sure the president's going to eat what they want to eat. But if it's not on the menu, they're not going to be able to order it. I just mixed a whole bunch of food metaphors up. Um, no, but that's,
0: that's so well said. But that's what it is. That's it. Yeah. And, and you know, there's too many things happening throughout the day. I mean, we see with, with Trump, it's like they get in his ear and suddenly Trump says he's for something or against something and it could be extremely dangerous. Um, speaking of transitions, the... <laughs> On their way out the door, Republicans are trying to make it harder for the Biden administration to tackle the most pressing issues neglected by the Trump administration. For example, Treasury Secretary Steve Nugent and his department will be putting unspent, unspent coronavirus relief funding, uh, $455 billion of it, in an account only accessible through congressional approval. Of course, that money could be going to Americans who desperately need it, but that's not what the Trump administration likes to spend things on, right, or spend it at all. Man.
2: I don't get this one. Like, I get, you know, Mnuchin's like, you know, a penguin-like Batman villain character, you know, or, or whatever it is, but Trump doesn't care where this money goes. Trump, doesn't Trump want this money to go out in a check with his name on it? He knows what the people want and he wants their love. That's all he's ever wanted. So I actually don't understand the obstacles in between him just sending this money out to the people and being like, I care about you, you know, love you." back. I mean,
0: does he even get it? Like, Simon, like sometimes some of these things, as as you know, happen through like loopholes in the law. Like, I didn't mm-hmm. even know that was something that they could do. Um, sure. And it might come back and bite them in the in the ass if we win the Senate, if Democrats win the Senate, unless, you know, of course, a couple of Democrats don't side with Democrats. Yeah. <laughs> what do you spot. think, Simon?
3: Well, I think that, um, I mean, I think that it's important to remember that these decisions are never made by one person, um, that this is, you know, that this might even have been out of Trump's hands, um, you know? Like, you know, there are a lot of people, I think, who would be, who would rather see, like, a Democratic administration fail in terms of, like, COVID relief than to see people actually Get the money and support that they need. Um, and so this could just be like a partisan power play kind of thing for the Republican Party against a, an incoming Democratic administration. You it's
0: so definitely not pollution. the vibe. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go
3: ahead. I was going to say
2: definitely not the vibe, uh, at, you know, and I'm not a fan of, of Bush uh, at all, W, uh, but not the vibe there, where when we actually went and visited, which was three days after the election, the White House. Uh, they kicked us out of the room, me and the Bush's talking. for clearly, but they were immediately talking about like whether or not they were going to have to like nationalize industries and like what was happening. And like, you know, there were big discussions about big wow. things happening to do with an economy that was in free fall. This is at least as serious, you know, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of Americans are suffering. Uh, we're not getting that same response,
0: But you know, speaking of the Overton window, I mean, this is just exactly the issue. It's like we've pushed further and further, right. That like, Nationalizing isn't even being discussed right now outside of like Jacobin circles and our circles, maybe. Like we've even probably mentioned it on our show five times. The fact that this isn't one of the first questions brought up or or discussions or ideas is is kind of mind-blowing. I mean, they can't even for lack of a better word, eliminate student debt, nationalize student debt or our or financing of, of education. I I my concern is about this Stephen Mnuchin thing. Number one, Stephen Mnuchin is not like a political actor. He is a Wall Street, like yes. hedge fund dude. Like, what does he even lose by doing this? Number one. Number two. Awesome. Exactly. Does Biden? I mean, are they looking at this situation and thinking like, like all okay? They, there's it's death by a thousand cuts before he even enters the presidency. Um, but there's there. It's like they're looking at the presidency as if they inherited from. Obama, not, like, they inherited this presidency. Are you guys seeing it the same way that I am? I'm, 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 I keep trying to wrap my head around, I'm like, do they recognize there's a crisis? Like, do they have any idea what's going on? Are they reading the newspaper? Or is, like, are they just listening to Obama's staffers say, like, we have the best economy ever? <laughs> Wall Street economy.
2: <laughs> just how you define the economy, you know? Like, there is a, a, a certain way to look at the economy where you're like, we're fine. You're like, well, a lot of people are going to die. And it's like, yeah. Like, and I think that's where the minutians of the world are at.
0: I mean, that's where he is. But is the Biden administration, oh. even or potential administration, the transition team, looking at this crisis and saying, I mean, I know Janet Yellen, we talked about this at the top of the show, but it just seems like they're, so, they're not tone deaf. They're literally in another world. Like, and I think that that world is the Obama world. And I think that they're maybe obsessed with Obama's legacy or i I'm not, I really, I can't wrap my hand around it. I'm like, why are they on this planet right now? Simon,
3: what do you... <laughs> I mean, I think the question is also, like, do they see, do they actually see their jobs as, you know, as political figures, as people with political power, as, as a job of being a public servant? Do they really feel like their duty is to people or, or are they really just, like, totally absorbed in the, like, political games? Um, And And also, to be fair, the way the way that it
2: is, you know, the swampiness, as as Trump described it, of Washington, it's like if, you know, you have to do a certain amount of politics just to keep going through the day and the amount of the day that it takes of you is unconscionable when you think about a crisis of this magnitude, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, the little glimmers of what Biden has said that sound like universal solutions to things like even promising that the vaccine will be free and delivered to everyone uh, is small beans compared to, you know, radical healthcare. But once people create these systems that are universal, it's so much easier to put something in and then widen it out and be like, well, now the mandate of this system you've set up is to deliver all vaccines to children. You know, now it's to deliver. And all of a sudden we're talking about something. So I I do think that they they recognize the crisis enough to create some opportunities for progressives to maybe do some great things. I, I hope so.
0: Um, I want to, before we wrap up, I want to briefly touch on uh, foreign policy and especially since it runs in Germany and I'm really curious how Europe, uh, the global perspective is because I mean, for those of you who've traveled, I love watching the news abroad and seeing. I mean, even CNN, which is all housed under the same CNN here in the states, it just has such a completely different interpretation of our news. Uh, partly because they're not screaming at each other on air all day, but um, we 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 have of of Blinken, right? Blinken uh, is the future Secretary of State. He's being state he's being hailed as a capable and dependable choice, but of course. Uh, his resume shows commitment to, to some of our most reprehensible actions in the military-industrial complex. Um, but you know, he, I think the argument people are making was it wasn't on him to decide. He was just reflecting the, the leadership uh, decisions of like our climate envoy or our former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Um, but he might you know, be able to break in response to the moment. I'll start with Simon, because I feel like progressives, and you, you had a lot to say on this, and then I'd love to get the global view.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, something Arun said earlier about like how you know we we know what what the what people in the country want, which is like a lot of these progressive ideas. I think that it's it becomes a little less true that we know what people want when it comes to foreign policy. So I think a lot of the time people don't really know how they feel about foreign policy. They don't really know. Like most people, you ask someone on the street, do they know what's happening in Yemen? You know, do they? Like probably not. Like if you looked at public support for the invasion in Iraq um, at the time that it was happening, it was actually quite high. You know, the majority of Americans supporting that kind of thing. So I don't think and I think also there's a reason that during elections the conversation is always revolving around things like healthcare or taxes and all of these sorts of domestic issues. Um, which are all, of course, important. But I think that there is sort of an intentional trying to, I mean, this is sort of my socialist lens on it is I, I feel like it's, it's trying to remove the sense of international solidarity. Um, and I think that as not just as socialists, but as just um, people who follow politics, it's important that we have an international lens on our politics and that we're, you know, when we're fighting for marginalized groups, like when we're fighting for women, we're not just fighting for American women, we're fighting for women across the world, and that all of these foreign policy decisions and all of these cabinet picks um, are really relevant to those struggles um, and that we keep that in in, in our focus, so. Anyway, those are those are my. No,
0: it's 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 the the irony of this all is number one. Secretary Clinton had this whole women and girls initiative globally, and of course her policies did not necessarily reflect that. Um, But but the other side of this is you know yesterday on majority report we had this little discussion about um, what it what it means for progressive foreign policy, and there's been very little uh, exercise in examining what an effective. Uh, foreign policy would be not just what we are against, but what it means to withdraw from Afghanistan, how that looks, what the response is, what happens with the vacuum, et cetera, et cetera. Really thinking through these geopolitical dynamics because you know it's 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 one thing to say you're against something, 100% agree, but like it's another thing to say okay, we they invaded Libya, NATO then what? Like <laughs> You have a country in shambles that's fighting with each other with open borders and ISIS swooping in and stealing oil. Okay, so, so what, what are you left with afterwards? And I, I'll say one thing about Biden, clearly different foreign policy perspective than many other even neoliberals um, and sometimes not always wrong. I mean, at least in those moments. I'm not saying he was he was for the invasion of Iraq. He's
2: had like, his moments. No, no, he's, he's had, had, had a couple good ones. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Weird.
0: Like the solution, like how Iraq should have been federal like Iraq. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Also Georgia when it was happening, he really right. had his finger on it. Yeah, yeah.
0: It's 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 a different form. It's a marked marked difference in foreign policy than most neoliberals, not socialists. <laughs> but um, I'm glad that Simon mentioned internationalism because Iran, you're you're in Berlin right now. Uh, I just finished up this Rosa Luxemburg book where Rosa Luxemburg was, was killed in, in Berlin and she was a champion for internationalism and, uh, and that was her, her form of, of Marxism to say it the least. So how is Germany responding to like these picks?
2: I think there's a positive and negative aspect to it, but they are universally blanketly excited about it. And, you know, all of my, you know, German reporter friends uh, who I now have and I'm WhatsApping with, you know, they I'm like, grumble, this, that, and the other. And they're like, look, just stop. We're excited about all of this. This is like what we want. We want a really boring American foreign policy. And some of that is a return. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, right? Because for them, it's boring. And, and like, this is where I want to like, you know, this is where I think we have, uh, the Obama-Trump crossover voters, which, I, which Simon was alluding to, and I think they're, they're isolationists and or peaceniks, if you want to call them left or right wing. I think that these are the mysterious people we can't figure out from Iowa why they for flipping back and forth. But uh, the Europeans want to return to the alliances, so all these things that we sort of in a knee-jerk way think are, are very good but actually some of the kind of story of the last four years is you know trump's a bull in the china shop breaking everything but some of this stuff is absolutely true and when you confront germans about it they admit it you're like you all should pay a little bit more for nato like what's up with that and they're like yeah we should you know like <laughs> they know you know it's like we're the ones still in afghanistan where did everybody else go you know <laughs> like i thought we were all into this and it's like yeah we're not into that anymore uh so these things continue you know and, and, and But I think sometimes we think about these things as being intractable and huge because they're sold to us as being intractable and huge. Mm-hmm. And I actually think this is where a, a Bernie Sanders foreign policy would be interesting, just sort of seeing him have some of these conversations close up, uh, whether it's even in the US talking about like uh, different populations here, or whatever. He wants to know the actual numbers. You know, like how much money does it take to, to make sure every coal miner has enough money not to like mine coal, nothing. You know, like you just right. do it. Why are we even talking about this? Um, something like in Afghanistan, you're like, well, look, we broke it. We bought it, but we can't stay here forever. So, like, what does it cost to evacuate every single person who wants to leave the country? Like, yeah, an astronomical eye-popping figure, but not the same as 10, 15 more years of war. Exactly. So I, I think we have to con- confront the reality of, of where we're at in foreign policy. And people in Germany, people all over all over Europe don't want us to confront that because the sort of middle of the road we're in it but not in it stuff is great for everybody else
0: yeah the the, the price tag has been put on on the u.s and of course just to, to go back to what simon said which was so so eloquent you know you you don't see any conversation about foreign policy and campaigns for the most part um campaigns or in the media yet all and, and it's all on 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 domestic policy yet when you look at the budget it's the absolute inverse
2: and the power of the president like there's actually right. not something you know. We treat them like they actually fix or harm the economy. They have no—it's yelling at the tides. They have no no effect on the economy in like lots of ways. I mean, they
0: have an effect in the markets <laughs> if that's how you look at the economy. Right,
2: exactly. <laughs> uh, oh, but economy. like they are—they are the foreign policy person. They call the shots. Right. They shoot from the hip. So it's like we really should be grilling them on what you're right. going to
0: do. The mother of all missiles was that what it was called the mother of all bombs. Mother of all bombs. The mother of all bombs. The what happened of all to wars. that? That was you know.
3: And I think that um, with the contending with and keeping an eye on and looking very critically at the, the, this transition that Biden's putting together and the cabinet picks that he's, that he's nominating, I think it's really um, going to be a challenge for liberals to, to look critically at this without also looking critically at the Obama years as so many of these people are coming from. Mm-hmm. And as we know, that is like one of the most difficult things to get a liberal to do is um, to look critically at the Obama years. But I think it's really important that we talk about, talk about the you know, drone strikes, talk about Libya, talk about all of the stuff that um, may be an uncomfortable conversation, but it is really important. And, and, and through that process of having those conversations, we can actually get people to maybe come a little further left.
0: I think that's the Achilles heel of the Democratic Party. And I nominate Arun Chowdhury to be the uh, special envoy to the Obama people into moving them a little bit more left, including the administration yeah. people.
2: No, and some of it is also sort of, you know, uh, uh, I haven't read the book, but it does seem like every presidential memoir is revisionist history. But some of what hurts me as someone you know, who is uh, you know, on the team is that he's revising it sort of the wrong way. I'm like, shouldn't you be pretending the other thing? You know, so for me, something that was a really proud moment was when we didn't bomb Syria uh, and the president said something great. What did he say? He was like, bombing something because everyone says you can is like a dumb reason to bomb something. And it was like, yeah, man, totally. Like that's exactly the right answer. Uh, And now hearing like the regret and the pain and we should have bombed them, it really, it hurts. It hurts.
0: Oh my God. Well, inshallah. Things will get better,
2: as Joe thank- Biden would say, Inshallah.
0: <laughs> oh yes, he does say that. He also says despacito and all these other things that are very clever. Um, Simon Rowe, thank you so much for joining, and Arun Choudhury, of course. And by the way, Simon, happy birthday! Your birthday was yesterday. Oh, it was uh, just- a nice. Sunday. Thank you. Yeah. I'm glad you had a nice birthday. And. To everybody else who is celebrating Thanksgiving, Indigenous Peoples Day, however you, Gratitude Day, or however you would like to interpret it so it's not recognizing murderous colonizers, um, I do, en- I hope you enjoy uh, your holiday. And I hope you enjoy it from Berlin.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: All right. Take care, everybody. We will. We're going to have just a little programming note. Uh, We're going to have some specials up tomorrow, Thursday and on Friday, some special interviews that we pre-taped. So you definitely want to check that out. I won't have a monologue because, you know, everyone's got to get a day off. Um, So definitely check that out. If you have time this weekend, we're going to be posting those interviews on Thursday and Friday. And then we will be back live on Tuesday of next week which I believe is another month. Is that December 1st? Do we have any shout outs, Dorsey? Am I missing these little shout outs? Um, Let me just check out. Tuesday, yes, it will be December 1st. Where did this year go? So December 1st, we will be up uh, live again. And I hope you guys are all uh, taking the time, social distancing if you can, wearing your masks, not taking your masks off inside unless you've made sure that these people are all you know, COVID-free. Um, even if you've had COVID, I don't know why I have to say these things. I feel like we all know these verbatim now. Even if you've had COVID, you can still carry to other people. Even if you have kids, it's still dangerous, especially if you're in a cold weathered environment. Uh, it's spreading faster because people are hanging out indoors more. Special shout outs to, oh, I'm gonna. I'm not going to do well with this one, but let's try. Brothwaite, bone spurs. Bush. Are you just messing with me? F- Number four. <laughs> five dollars. Thank you so much. Oh, we've got a Greek here. Sam Sohonis uh, for five dollars regarding the fascism segment. Thank you so much, says the incapacity to question authority is directly related to these daddy issues. It is central to our problems in this cult of domination. I do agree. And very, very special thanks to Professor Harvey K and all of the hashtag know me kids mixing it up in the live chat. That's a Professor Harvey K uh, line. And thank you to MIDI doctors and Jules for working the algorithms and of course extra extra huge thanks to our moderator Choken for single-handedly keeping the chat honest. Happy Thanksgiving. Shout out to all of the Brits in the live chat. There's a lot. I don't know where you came from. Thank you. Uh, Sometimes I show up on Navarro Media. I love Navarro Media and they just hit 100K. So uh, congrats to them. Maybe that's where they came from. They're regulars. I apologize. I just heard that there's a lot in the live chat right now. But thank you. Much appreciated. All right. Be well. And to the Brits, even though it's not Thanksgiving, thanks for joining us. (laughs) And have a happy holiday, everybody. Take care.